So good morning. Welcome visitors. In case you don't know me, I'm Pastor Dan. I would have said Pastor Mike, but I can't get away with it. (laughs) This morning, the title of my sermon is A Glimpse into God's Glory. Just to give you advance notice, I know some of you read my text before you came, which is always good. But you know, when we talk about God's glory, it's more than a view of His glorious creation, His magnificent love and His magnificent mercy. His glory is also displayed and depicted in His power. And His power is manifested in His destruction judgments, and condemnations. That's all to the glory of God. And so our text, Revelations 15, 1 through 8, advances that side as well. Now most of you know that I rarely preach or teach from the book of the Revelation. I find it confusing, challenging, and bewildering for many. You know, it's full of symbols and, and metaphors. And to a certain extent, it's filled with symbols and metaphors in a way to keep the truth hidden from the unbelievers. That was one of the reasons. In any event, uh, it's a wonderful, inspiring book. You know, I had some contact in the first service, and they approached me to tell me that I had lost them. Well, I knew I was going to lose some because it's kind of a highly technical intellectual presentation of its revelation. What can I tell you? It's revelation. And so I don't know what to do about that. My wife thinks I should probably slow down in how I speak to see if that'll make people understand better. So I'm going to try to slow down. But please, follow the text, follow the sermon outline provided as an insert in your bulletin for your easy reference, okay? But I'm going to make what is otherwise a 25-minute sermon into 30 minutes, okay? But for now, let us continue to turn to God as he, as he continues to anoint this service of worship. I generally turn to Psalm 1914 for that. And so, dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen? You know, as I begin this sermon, I will agree that we often think of the glory of God. For example, we, as we turn to the starry sky on a clear night, and we silently survey all of the stars from one end to the other, we think of how beautiful and glorious is God's creation. We wonder, if heaven is this beautiful on the outside, how much more beautiful is heaven on the inside? And we're taken back, we're awed by the glory of God. And in this wonderful chapter 15, our text We are given a fresh glimpse into glory. Now, no book in the Bible talks 
about heaven more or tells us more about heaven than the book of the Revelation. But this book also reveals God's full glory. And as you study the book of the Revelation, you will find that you are in constantly shifting scenes. One moment you are in heaven, and the next moment you are back on earth. In chapter 4, you are transferred to heaven. In chapter 6, transported back to earth. In chapter 7, you are transferred to heaven. In chapter 8, transported right back to earth. In chapter 12, we are transferred to heaven. In chapter 13, we are transported back to earth. And so it goes. But you'll find one major difference in the book of Revelation between heaven and earth. Heaven is a place of worship. Earth is a place of wrath. Heaven is a place of joy. Earth is a place of judgment. Heaven is a place of celebration. Earth is a place of condemnation. In heaven, the lamb is crowned. On earth, the lamb is cursed. Heaven is filled with the glory of God. Earth is filled with the guilt of man. And with each passing chapter, we see the waves of God's judgment beating ever more furiously against the dam of his mercy. The end is near. The time has come for God's final judgment against a sinful, rebellious world. And what God started in the Garden of Eden, he's about to finish in the Battle of Armageddon. But before God pulls down the curtain of time, before the final chapter of human history is written, before the last battle is fought, before the last trumpet is blown, before the last shot is fired, John gives us a final look into heaven, a glimpse into glory. Listen, four key words highlight what John saw in this heavenly scene. He saw a sign in verse 1, a sea in verse 2, a song in verse 3, and smoke in verse 8. These four markers point us to a different aspect of the heavenly scene as John saw it. So first in your outline, consider A, the inescapable wrath of God, a sign. Verse 1 states, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels have the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. We're coming to that climax of that period of time known as the Great Tribulation. We see the last plagues about to be poured out. Revelation is a book of last things. The cup of God's wrath is now full. God's anger is at the boiling point. God's clock is at midnight. God's patience has ended. The dark clouds of God's wrath are about to rain judgment down upon the earth. First, it is a coming judgment. Our text, verse 5, states, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. 
Just as thousands of years ago on earth, there was an earthly tabernacle, so likewise in heaven there is an eternal heavenly tabernacle. In fact, we are told that the earthly, earthly tabernacle was modeled after the heavenly tabernacle. The temple of the tabernacle in the Old Testament was referred to as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was that sacred place where only the high priest could enter, and he could only enter once a year. But we are further told here in verse 5, it is the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. In the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The word testimony means covenant. This covenant was the symbol of God's faithfulness to his word. It was God's eternal way of saying, I will keep my promise to my people. Psalm 105 verse 8 reminds us, He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. See, God has made a promise to this world, concerning this world, for this world, and it is a promise of judgment. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord in Zephaniah 3.8, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all of my fierce anger, all of the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Listen, this world is headed for two things. It is headed for Jesus and it is headed for judgment. The judgment can be delayed, but it cannot be denied. It is a coming judgment. And second, it is a complete judgment. We are told of seven angels who will pour out seven plagues. And seven, as you know, is the number of completeness. In the Bible, it symbolizes absolute perfection. This tells us that God's final judgment is going to be a perfect judgment. When God judges this world, there will be no loopholes, no plea bargains, no hung juries, no bribed judges, no miscarriages of justice. Only the innocent will be declared innocent. Only the guilty will be declared guilty. God's verdict will be rendered swiftly, surely, and sternly. There will be no appeal. No decision will be overturned by a higher court. When God's gavel comes down, the verdict will be reached. The sentence will be passed. And the case will be closed. It is a complete judgment. Third, it is a controlled judgment. These seven angelic priests are God's messengers of judgment who will execute his vengeance fairly and faithfully. Verse 6 states, they are clothed in pure bright linen. Well, that symbolizes their purity. They have in verse 6, their chest girded with golden bands. That symbolizes their sovereignty. In the Bible, gold is a color of royalty, authority, and sovereignty. This simply tells us that God has the right to judge and he will judge righteously. 
He will judge indiscriminately. He will judge intelligently. He will judge infallibly, and he will judge instantly. He is the judge of all of the earth. And will not the judge of the earth do what is right? B in your outline, consider B, the indestructible word of God. A C. Our text, verse 2, states, And I saw something like a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now, once before, we have seen this sea of glass. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 states, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. The sea of glass symbolizes the Word of God. Remember, we're dealing here with a temple truth, for this is a temple scene. You know, in the Old Testament, in front of the temple was a brass laver. This laver was filled with water. And the priests who would minister in the temple would first come to this brass laver and would wash and make themselves clean before they would administer the sacrifices and minister before the Lord. In the Old Testament, this brass laver was called a sea. In 1 Kings 7.23, this sea, this brass laver was symbolic of the Word of God. Now the fact that this sea of glass is in heaven and the saints there are standing on the sea mingled with fire reminds us of the great power of the Word of God. So first, consider the saving power of the Word of God. The reason these saints stand on God's Word in heaven is because they are saved through God's Word on earth. And we are saved by grace through faith. But faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Before a man can enter into heaven, he must be born again. But how is one born again? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.23 that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Paul says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And Peter then in 1 Peter 1.25 says this, Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. There is not only wonder-working power in the blood of Christ. There is wonder-working power in the book of God. Second, consider the sanctifying power of the word of God. Remember that this labor was placed outside the temple where the priests could wash and be clean. They had to be clean before they could perform their priestly duties. God can hit a big lick with a crooked stick but he won't hit any lick with a dirty stick. Before you and I can serve God, we must be clean. You must be sanctified. We are sanctified by the word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is his heavenly detergent. 
that he uses on us day by day, washing our sins away. And Paul speaks of being cleansed in Ephesians 5.26 with the washing of water by the word. Third, consider the securing power of the word of God. Listen, these saints no longer wash in the sea. In the sea. They, they stand on it. And the reason why they're standing on the sea is because they are already clean. Again, verse 2 says, the sea is mingled with fire. This fire is a picture of the trials that these tribulation martyrs had to endure. And they came through the fire victorious, as verse 2 states, over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. I want to tell you that there are times when the daylight of triumph will become the darkness of tragedy. There are going to be times in your life when the only thing you have left to lean on is God's precious word. But you will find that the word of God, like the grace of God, is sufficient. Third in your outline, consider C. The incomparable worship of God, a song. Our text, verse 3, states, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Not only are these saints standing, but they're also singing. They sing Two songs. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, why do they specifically sing these two songs? The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the crystal, the glass sea. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brought his people in. The song of Moses is the first song in the Bible. The song of the Lamb is the last song in the Bible. The song of Moses was sung by redeemed people on earth. The song of the Lamb is sung by a rescued people in heaven. In Moses, we see the might of God. In the Lamb, we see the mercy of God. In Moses, we see justice. In the Lamb, we see justification. In Moses, we see the power of God. In the Lamb, we see the pity and mercy of God. Moses is the shadow, but the Lamb is the substance. You see, the song of Moses is a song of redemption. When the children were led across the Red Sea and the army of Egypt was destroyed, they immediately sang a song to the Lord to be known as the song of Moses. Moses is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pharaoh was a type of an antichrist. Egypt is a type of the world. Israel is a picture of the people of God. So just as Moses led his people out of Egypt over to Canaan, Jesus is going to lead all of his saints out of earth and into heaven. Notice that 
These saints are singing, verse 3, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. They praised the works of God, and they praised the ways of God. On the one hand, they sang, How great art thou! And on the other hand, they sang, How good art thou! On the one hand, they praised the power of God. On the other hand, they praised the plan of God. We see how they sing of the majestic virtue of God. Verse 4, for you alone are holy. They sing of the majestic victory of God. Verse 4, for all nations shall come and worship before you. They sing of the manifest vengeance of God. Verse 4, for your judgments have been manifested. I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, the word works, the word ways, and the word worship. When a man contemplates the works of God and the ways of God, he is automatically moved to the worship of God. Or to put it another way, when a man thinks about the power of God shown by his works, when a man thinks about the plan of God seen in his ways, when a man thinks about the person of God shown through his name, he cannot help but burst forth in the praise of God. And finally, in your outline, D, the incredible wonder of God, smoke. Our text verse 8 states, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. See, normally God's temple was a place of prayer. God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But here we are told that men cannot enter into the temple because of the smoke of God's glory. This verse harkens back to a prophetic verse very deep in the Old Testament. Lamentations 3 verses 43 to 44 states, You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. Smoke in the Bible is the symbol of the judgment and wrath of God. It is a sign here that in the temple of heaven, the fire of God's wrath is burning against the sin of humanity. It is even now a smoldering, simmering smoke that at any moment is capable of exploding into a fiery flame of judgment. In the Old Testament, when priests would offer the animal sacrifice for the people, fire would fall from heaven and consume the sacrifice. That fire was a picture of what would have happened to the sinner if the sacrifice had not been made. In Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu offered to God a sacrifice that was not acceptable. Fire came from heaven and immediately consumed them. The fire that did not fall on the sacrifice fell on the sinners. The Bible clearly teaches 
That the fire of God's judgment is going to fall. The only question is, where is it going to fall? Will it fall on the sacrifice? Or will it fall on the sinner? Listen, the sacrifice is Jesus. You know, I read several years ago of some men who were out in the prairie camping out. And a prairie fire came up. The wind was whipping the flames furiously toward the, toward the men that they realized that they could not possibly outrun the flames. The flames were moving closer and closer, and they did not know what to do. One man said to the others, we're going to die. There's nothing we can do. But one man said, wait a minute, I have a plan. He reached into his pocket, took out a package of matches, struck a match, and lighted a fire at his very feet. His fire burned while the prairie fire was coming. One of the men in the group said, You fool! Now we are surrounded by fire. Now we will surely die. The man said, Wait just a moment. I know what I'm doing. He said, Now step over here into the burned-off place. Now we're all saved because the fire will not and cannot come where the fire has already been. Listen, 2,000 years ago, the fire of God's judgment fell on Christ on the cross of Calvary. That fire burned out a circle large enough for every person that has ever lived to enter in. And you have one of two choices. It's either Jesus or judgment. The choice is up to you. And I pray that you will get into God's circle of salvation this moment so that you might not only have a glimpse into glory, but that you might live in that glory forever and ever. Amen? Well, the service is over. For those of you who were lost in my points, listen again to this sermon on our podcast with your Bible.